0: Chief Justice, may it please the court.
1: I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government.
2: Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. GC, how have you been?
1: I'm great, Zach. It's great to be back.
2: It is, and it looks like the Supreme Court is back to
1: work hearing cases. Start us out, G. C. Uh, what new orders have we received from the court? Sure, one big one uh, worth noting right now: Murphy versus Missouri. The court granted a case challenging the Biden administration's coordinated efforts with social media companies to censor speech that it labeled misinformation. Interestingly, although the court took the case, it stayed the injunction against the administration that the district court imposed and that the Fifth Circuit had upheld. Justices Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch argued uh, that the court uh, stayed the injunction wrongly and without reviewing the record. Um, this is a particular pet peeve of mine when the court, when the majority does something like this without any explanation or opinion at all, and it leaves the you know the dissenters' um, position sounds you know quite correct uh, if for no other reason than that. You know they're not answered. So we won't know why the court uh, stayed the injunction uh, until I suppose we get an opinion. But the case uh, will be heard. So that's uh, a big First Amendment uh, and government censorship case.
2: Well, you know, GC, I think this is going to be a big First Amendment uh, term at the court, particularly as the First Amendment applies to tech companies. And the reason I say that is because uh, one of the oral arguments the court heard this past week, it was actually in two cases. Uh, one was O'Connor Ratcliffe versus Garnier, and the other was Linke versus Feed. And both of these cases deal with the, the issue of whether and when public officials can block people from their social media accounts without violating the First Amendment. Now, the question in both of these cases turn on whether the officials are acting within their official capacities on their social media accounts or whether they're acting in their individual capacities. Given the mixed use that many politicians make of their social media accounts, uh, the question seems like it could be pretty thorny, and I think the justices may struggle to Decide on how to resolve that mixed use question. I say that because after several hours of oral arguments uh, where the litigators uh, arguing the case offered several different tests, uh, it wasn't clear whether the justices were leaning in any particular direction.
1: The court also heard argument this week in Vidal versus Elster, which also has a First Amendment component. It is a trademark case challenging a rule in the Lanham Act, which is the trademark uh, statute, that forbids trademarks that identify a living person without their consent. In this case, Mr. Elster tried to trademark shirts with the phrase, Trump too small, but was denied a trademark. So he claims that the denial of his trademark violates his free speech rights, And in the past, the court has struck down parts of the Lanham Act that forbid registering offensive or vulgar speech on the basis that that is protected free speech. But the courts seem largely in agreement at oral argument that this restriction does not implicate free speech. Hmm. Very interesting. It'll be
2: interesting to see how the court resolves this case, particularly because, as you mentioned, uh, some of the other high-profile recent. Uh, cases involving potential trademarks.
1: Yeah, well, all argument. The courts, the justices, although they seem to be in agreement that this was not protected speech, they did have different opinions about how they reached that conclusion. So, if memory serves, Justice Kagan seemed to think that this was uh, a, um, a conf- oh, this was about preventing confusion. Justice Gorsuch seemed to think that uh, over uh, uh, in history, the Lanham Act. Uh, has been used to prohibit certain kinds of, um, uh, I wouldn't call it quite slanderous, but personal or um, uh, offensive speech, and that seemed to him fine under under a historical approach. So, mm. be interesting to see what they coalesce around. Very
2: interesting. Well, that brings us to the final oral argument we're going to cover this week Cully versus marshall now this case raises questions about how quickly one should be able to get a hearing after police have taken your property using something called civil asset forfeiture now civil asset forfeiture is very controversial it's been in the news a lot over the past decade or so And it's essentially a legal device that allows police to seize property that they suspect has been used in the commission of a crime, but there's not necessarily a finding of any criminal conduct. In fact, uh, police can seize property from you even if you weren't the one who used it to commit a crime. In this case, the plaintiff's cars were taken even though other people had used them to traffic drugs. The owners here eventually got their cars back, but it took them more than a year. At oral argument, the justices were concerned about potential abuses of civil asset forfeiture procedures, but they seemed unconvinced that there were actually abuses in these cases. Justice Sotomayor, for example, seemed to think that the delay was at least partly the plaintiff's fault and that but for their mistakes, there wouldn't have been any problems in the civil asset forfeiture proceedings that took place below. It's a very interesting case and again, certainly involves a very controversial Uh, legal mechanism of civil asset forfeiture.
1: Well, that's it for oral arguments this week. Uh, This week, in lieu of an interview, uh, we are going to play for you a lecture delivered last week, the Joseph Story lecture uh, delivered by Judge Jim Ho. That lecture right after this.
2: So what is going on with Ukraine? What is this deal with the border? How do you feel about school choice? These are the questions that come up to conservatives sitting at parties, at dinner, at family reunions. What do you say when these questions come up? I'm Mark Giney, the host of the podcast for you, Heritage Explains, brought to you by all of your friends here at the Heritage Foundation. Through the creative use of stories the knowledge of our super passionate experts we bring you the most important policy issues of the day and break them down in a way that is understandable so check out heritage explains wherever you get your
0: podcasts ladies and gentlemen welcome to our program the
2: 2023 joseph story distinguished lecture please welcome john malcolm vice president of the heritage foundations institute for constitutional government
0: Thank you. Well, good evening, everybody. I would like to welcome you all uh, to the Heritage Foundation and to the Joseph Story Distinguished Lecture. Uh, As you heard, my name is John Malcolm. I'm the vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government here. So this lecture, has been named in honor of one of our country's most eminent jurists and legal scholars, a man who, in fact, distinguished himself himself in many ways. Joseph Story was involved in politics and civic activities in his native state of Massachusetts. After several years in private practice, he served in the Massachusetts State Legislature, for part of that time as Speaker of the House, and then in the United States Congress. Pretty remarkable when you consider that he did all of that before being confirmed as an associate justice of the Supreme Court at the age of 32, the youngest justice in our nation's history. In addition to serving with distinction on the high court for 33 years, Story was instrumental in establishing the Harvard Law School, where he served as its Dane Professor of Law. Story was also an accomplished writer whose articles and books were praised on both sides of the Atlantic. His most famous work, of course, is his commentaries on the Constitution, which demonstrated his commitment to faithfully interpreting the Constitution as it was understood by those who wrote it and ratified it. The influence of Story's commentaries continues to be felt today among the judiciary and constitutional scholars. We are indeed fortunate tonight to have Judge James Ho as this year's story lecturer. Judge Ho sits on the US Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, having been confirmed in January of 2018. Prior to becoming a judge, Judge Ho was a partner at the law firm of Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher, and he served for three years as the Solicitor General of Texas. In each of those years, Judge Ho won the Best Brief Award, which was awarded by the National Association of Attorneys General, which comes as no surprise to anyone who has read those briefs or any of his judicial opinions. Judge Ho also served as chief counsel of the Senate Judiciary Committee's subcommittee on the Constitution and Immigration and as a special assistant to the head of the Civil Rights Division and as an attorney advisor at the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department. Judge Ho began his legal career as a law clerk to Judge Jerry Smith, who is now his colleague on the Fifth Circuit, and to Justice Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court. Many of us, of course, would be happy to see Judge Ho serve as Justice Thomas's colleague on that court, too. Please join me in welcoming to the stage Judge Jim Ho. Well,
3: thank you, John, for that uh, kind and at times absurd introduction. I I am very honored uh, to deliver this year's Joseph Story lecture, Uh, particularly when you look at uh, those who spoke before me. It's a particularly absurd privilege. John, as I said, that was very nice. Uh, You and I have been friends uh, really since we were both at the Justice Department uh, back in 2001. Uh, But actually, my history with the Heritage Foundation uh, goes back even further than that. Uh, I was checking my. uh, records uh, preparing for this. And I noticed, actually, that 25 years ago this week, I attended my first Heritage Legal Strategy Forum. General Meese had invited me uh, to present a law review article that I had co-authored about racial preferences and the uh, and, and legal appointments at the Justice Department. And, and soon after that, he sat down with me for an interview for the Green Bag uh, on the importance of originalism. I was just a law student. Uh, So you can imagine the formative and lasting influence that General Meese had on me. He inspired me to pursue public service, and he gave me the confidence that I might actually be able to do it. And for that, I am profoundly grateful to General Meese and to the Heritage Foundation. One of my favorite privileges of being a federal judge is the honor of presiding over a naturalization ceremony. I do it every year in May to celebrate the anniversary of my own naturalization in May 1982. I wasn't born in the United States, so I I, I did not enter this world as an American. Uh, But I wake up every morning thanking God that I will leave this world as an American. I like to say that I'm Taiwanese by birth, Texan by marriage. But most importantly, I'm American by choice. If you've never attended a naturalization ceremony, there's nothing more inspiring. People from all around the world come together in one room for one purpose, to become Americans. As Americans, we should never forget how special it is to live in a place that people all around the world would literally do anything to join. There aren't a lot of countries that you can say that about. And it reminds you that people aren't desperate to come to America in droves because it's a failed nation. They're desperate to come to America because it's the most successful nation in human history. And it's worth thinking about why that is. It's not because we're all the same, because we're not. We're different in so many ways. We look different. We come from different backgrounds. We practice different faiths. We hold different opinions on a wide range of subjects. subjects, And we disagree on so very many things. In a nation of over 300 million Americans, we're never going to agree on everything. We're all committed to the same basic principles of liberty, equality. but We have vigorous disagreements and boisterous debates about what those principles require in practice. So how are we supposed to come together when we disagree so passionately about so much? Well, our nation's uh, founders debated this very topic. The Federalists urged that despite our many differences, the former colonies would be much better off together as one united country, that we would enjoy enormous economic, diplomatic, security, foreign policy, and various other advantages that naturally flow from scale. The Anti-Federalists thought that was crazy. They reminded us that no republic in history had ever succeeded anywhere near that size. They feared that we would be too diverse. They worried that we would bicker endlessly get nothing done, and they believe that we would be better off, by and large, apart. The Federalists prevailed in the debate by offering two critical ingredients for avoiding endless conflict, federalism and freedom of speech. We would do at the national level what must be done at the national level, but we would leave ample space for differing viewpoints, and we would have the freedom to advocate and advance our beliefs in our respective state, and local communities nationwide. But we cannot lightly assume that these founding values will always persist. They must be nurtured and taught. They must be passed down from generation to generation. President Reagan warned us that freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. Or one day, we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. Allison and I are blessed with a twin daughter and son. They are the joy of our lives. But when they bicker, they really bicker. And when they do, you can predict what happens next. Retaliation. If you won't agree with me, you can't come into my room. You can't play with my toys. You can't borrow my books. And no, I won't talk to you, except to tell you that I won't talk to you. (laughs) But here's the thing. Kids are supposed to grow out of it. We're supposed to instill in them values like respect and charity. We're supposed to teach them that there will always be disagreements, but that we should always try to presume good faith from our fellow man, that we often have more to learn from those we disagree with than those who are already with us, that we have established peaceful, respectful ways of resolving our differences, and that when lose, or draw, we're better off together than apart. As parents, we're supposed to teach these principles to our children, and these lessons are supposed to be reinforced by teachers, colleges, and universities. Unfortunately, our nation's institutions of higher education don't seem to be fostering these principles very well. Students today don't seem to value the rigorous exchange of ideas the way we used to. According to the Brookings Institution, 50% of college students say that it's okay to shout down any speaker you disagree with. One in five, according to that study, one in five say that violence can be appropriate. That was back in 2017. The numbers may be even higher today. According to a 2023 survey by the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, today two-thirds of college students now say that it's okay to shout down a speaker you oppose. And 41% of students now say that violence may be appropriate, according to a 2022 Buckley Institute report. So it's no wonder that we're seeing more and more disruptions on law school campuses nationwide against respected legal scholars, accomplished litigators, and an increasing number of federal judges. Campus disruptions seem to be happening more frequently. And when they do happen, they're getting more attention. But here's the thing. These campus disruptions aren't the core problem. They're just a symptom of the problem. The real problem in the academy is not disruption. It's discrimination. Rampant, blatant discrimination against disfavored viewpoints, against students, faculty, or anyone else who dares to voice a view that may be mainstream across America, but are contrary to the views of cultural elites. And let's just say it, the viewpoint discrimination we most often see in the academy today is discrimination against religious conservatives. Just look at the dramatic absence of intellectual diversity on our nation's college faculties and amongst university administrators. What message does it send when colleges and universities say they believe in diversity, but they systematically exclude certain views from the faculty lounge. It says that viewpoint diversity may be important, but that some views are beyond the pale. It says that it's OK to exclude the deeply held good faith views of millions of Americans and our uh, millions of our fellow countrymen from the nation's discourse. The typical justification that you'll hear for this discrimination is that some religious conservative views are just too much. They make people feel unsafe. So it's okay to eliminate these views from campus. But that's not why they're expelling these viewpoints from campus. They're not doing it for safety reasons. They're doing it for substantive ideological reasons, for discriminatory reasons. Just compare and contrast what we've seen on campus in the past to what we've seen in recent weeks. Expressing religious viewpoints, traditional viewpoints, gets you vilified. But claiming a right to eliminate a religious group gets you the benefit of the doubt. Voicing traditional values makes people feel unsafe. But supporting terrorism against innocent civilians doesn't. Speech is violence, unless it's speech that cultural elites like. Is there an underlying principle here? I'm not sure there is. I wonder if what's really going on is that some people are disfavored, while others are favored. Some people are deemed oppressors, and others the oppressed. That's wrong. It's un-American. And it's driving more and more of us to ask if our nation's colleges and universities are institutions of higher education or incubators of bigotry. The state of higher education concerns me. And it's not just because our nation's law schools directly impact the work of the judiciary and help constitute the future leadership of our country. It's also because the same toxic discrimination that distorts discourse on college campuses also distorts discourse about the courts. It's the same mindset that motivates the current campaign to undermine the third branch of government. You know, one of the things you're told Uh, when you go through the Senate confirmation process for federal judges, is that if you say that you're an originalist, you should expect controversy. But it really shouldn't be controversial at all. After all, every judge swears an oath to uphold the Constitution. So being an originalist is really just part of the job description because being an originalist just means being faithful to whatever text you're interpreting. Justices Scalia and Thomas repeatedly have described themselves as originalists. So have other members of the Supreme Court. Justice Ginsburg said that she, quote, counts herself as an originalist, too. Justice Kagan declared during her Senate confirmation hearing that we are all originalists. Justice Jackson likewise testified that adherence to text is a constraint on my authority. We're bound by the text and what it meant to those who drafted it. So there is a broad consensus in favor of construing legal texts as written, consistent with their original understanding and public meaning, or at least there's consensus as a matter of theory. It's when you start applying originalism in certain specific contexts that controversy emerges, when originalism happens to lead to results despised by the cultural elites who lead the national discourse. When that happens, originalists face a concerted campaign of condemnation. Originalists are disparaged and destroyed. We're not merely wrong as an intellectual matter. We're not just disagreeing in good faith about the proper meaning of legal terms. We're fundamentally bad people who are just too extreme for polite society. We're mean-spirited, racist, sexist, homophobic. We're just trolling or auditioning. We're unethical, if not corrupt. I think it's obvious what's going on here. There have been We've, we've certainly heard plenty of threats about packing the courts. But there's really no need to pack the courts when you can just pressure the courts and get the same result. It's the same pathos that we see on college campuses. It's not enough that I disagree with you. I also have to dislike you and disparage and disrespect you as a human being. Instead of judging your reasoning, I pass judgment on the person behind it. I don't presume good faith. I impute malicious intent. It's a sad way of looking at the world. And it's a bizarre approach to understanding a judiciary that is expressly avowedly committed to originalism. I'll just give you one recent example. A few months ago, the Supreme Court decided a criminal case called Counterman versus Colorado. The victim in that case is a professional musician who had received thousands of threatening and disturbing messages from the defendant over a number of years. This defendant had previously served time for terrorizing at least four other women. And he was eventually convicted uh, again and imprisoned for more than four years for criminally stalking his latest victim. Yet she remains terrified of him and in hiding to this day. To protect her anonymity, the Supreme Court's recent opinion refers to her only by her initials. By a vote of seven to two, the Supreme Court overturned the conviction as a violation of the First Amendment on the theory that the prosecution wasn't required, uh, as it should have been, to prove a particular mental state for the defendant. Justice Kagan, author of the majority opinion. Justice Sotomayor wrote it at concurrence. Justices Thomas and Barrett dissented. I disagreed with the ruling, suggested as much in an opinion earlier this year. Uh, So did my wife, Allison, who filed an amicus brief on behalf of the victim before the Supreme Court. But although we disagree with the opinion, we would never question the good faith of any of the justices. We would certainly never suggest that any member of the counterman majority is sexist or favors violence against women. Yet that's exactly what at least one leading law professor has done. A few weeks ago, a professor at Georgetown accused the justices in the counterman majority of, and I quote, blindness to gender violence. She called the court, quote, the enemy of popular laws devised to protect women. Well, I don't have to agree with the majority in countermen to recognize that these disparaging remarks are badly mistaken and deeply insulting. And I'd say the same about many other attacks we've recently seen against the justices in many other areas of the law. Judges can and do disagree in good faith about the proper interpretation of legal rules. We ought to be able to disagree with one another without despising one another, even in cases like countermen where passions understandably run high. But no matter how absurd or hateful critics may be, I do thank God that I live in a country and under a constitution that guarantees everyone the right to criticize our officials. That includes judges. In fact, if anyone in public office should be able to ignore criticisms and just do your job, it's presumably those who enjoy life tenure. Citizens have every right to expect federal judges to follow the law in every case, no matter how belligerent or baseless the booing of the crowd. Because that's the job. And that raises, naturally, the question, how are we doing in these jobs? The Chief Justice famously compared judges to umpires during his confirmation hearing. I think it's a good metaphor in many respects. But I also do wonder if comparing judges to umpires is ultimately comforting or discomforting. If you're a sports fan like I am, you're no doubt familiar with the phenomenon of home field advantage. Well, there is a fascinating book called Scorecasting. The authors devote an entire chapter of their book to the topic of home field advantage. Based on their extensive analysis, they conclude that home field advantage is a real phenomenon, that the leading cause of home field advantage is the referees and that it's because the referees are responding to the hometown crowd. As it turns out, most people don't like to be booed. Most people like to be liked. And referees and umpires are no different. The authors begin their analysis with the observation that referees and umpires are, quote, professionals, uncorrupted and incorruptible, consciously doing their best to ensure fairness. They are not, however, immune from, to human psychology And that's where, the authors think, the explanation for hometown bias resides. Because when they're faced with enormous pressure, say, making a crucial call with a rabid crowd yelling, taunting, and chanting a few feet away, it is natural to want to alleviate that pressure. These authors look at various studies across different sports. In one study, uh, they took a group of refs to watch a soccer game on television with the sound turned on, while they took another group to watch that same game on TV Uh, but in silence. The group watching the game with the sound on called fewer penalties against the home team and more against the away team than the group watching the game in silence. The natural inference being this. The refs were influenced by the booing of the crowd. Other studies uh, document referee bias across a wide range of sports. And the greatest amount of bias when the game is close. In baseball, home teams strike out less and walk more than away teams. In football, away teams are penalized more than home teams, particularly when the penalty results in a first down for the offense. The authors found similar effects in basketball and hockey. And they ultimately conclude that, quote, referee bias from social influence is not only present, it's the leading cause of home field advantage. The COVID-19 pandemic uh, has actually given us a a chance to test this uh, hypothesis in the real world. And that's because, due to government lockdown policies, we now have experience running live soccer games without any hometown crowd. And it turns out that it proves the author's right. Without crowds, these refs penalized home teams as much as away teams. So if we take the Chief Justice's umpire metaphor seriously, we also need to be aware and wary of what that metaphor foretells. Americans are passionate about our sports teams. But we're also passionate about our politics. And in sports and politics alike, judges must have not only the intellect, but also the fortitude to be impartial, no matter how angry the crowd. Judges must not be afraid of being booed. But here's the problem. There's good reason to worry that judges are, if anything, even more susceptible to hometown bias than umpires. For umpires and referees, the booing is transient. It's fleeting. You make a call, the fans boo, but it only lasts for a few seconds. The game moves on. The crowd moves on. Nobody knows who you are. They don't know your name. So the moment passes, it doesn't follow the ref around. That's just not true with judges. Most fans don't know the name of the ref who makes a call that they dislike, but it's very easy to know the name of the judge who writes an opinion you despise. And people can spend their whole life publicly disparaging that judge if they want. Now, you might think, well, isn't that why judges have life tenure, to make sure that they ignore public opprobrium and just do their jobs? And of course, you'd be exactly right. Public criticism isn't supposed to have any impact. Judges and refs are supposed to follow principle, not popularity, in their decision making. Judges, like refs, are supposed to know Supposed to know that uh, whether a decision is lawful is orthogonal to whether it's loved. But that leads to uh, a second uh, and even more important reason why booing can make a bigger difference on judges than on refs. I call it the gold star syndrome. When you look at the typical resume of a federal judge, you often see a series of fancy credentials, uh, fancy law school, fancy clerkships fancy law firms, and government positions. And with folks like that, with people who are typically used to collecting gold stars, they tend to be motivated by one overarching objective, collecting even more gold stars. A Harvard undergraduate recently published a remarkably self-aware essay in the Wall Street Journal. Here's what she said. Our life's mission has been to please those who can grant or withhold approval. Parents, teachers, coaches, admissions officers, job interviewers. As a result, many of us don't know what we believe or what matters to us. My peers and I are often told that we are the future leaders of America. Well, we may be the future decision makers, but most of us aren't leaders, our principal concern is becoming members of the American elite with whatever compromises, concessions, and conformity that requires. I think this Harvard undergrad is spot on. I certainly wouldn't be surprised if the pursuit of gold stars explains a lot of the behavior we see in elite colleges and universities. And we can certainly have a debate about what we think about that. But it's emphatically not the behavior we should hope to see in our nation's judges. If you plan to be faithful to the Constitution in every case, no matter how unpopular that may be, gold stars are not in the cards for you. But that is the job. Judges don't swear an oath to uphold the Constitution part of the time. They swear an oath to uphold the Constitution all of the time. I'll use, uh, with your indulgence, another sports analogy. You've heard of fair-weather fans. Well, if you're an originalist, only when elites won't be upset with you. If you're an originalist, only when it's easy. That's not principled judging. That's fair-weather originalism. We're not binding ourselves to the text, if we follow it only when people like the result. Originalism is either a matter of principle or nothing more than talking point. Fair-weather originalism isn't originalism, because if you're not an originalist in every case, then you're really not an originalist at all. Moreover, there is a perverse irony to fair-weather originalism. If you're a law nerd like me, you might find debates about judicial methodology endlessly fascinating. No matter what the underlying legal issue may be, the first time I was assigned an opinion for our En banc court, uh, we were divided by a vote of 10 to 2 to 4. We spent, or my colleagues and I spent 55 pages debating the meeting of Rule 54B of the rules of Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. These legal issues that we decided in that case are fascinating to absolutely nobody, <laughs> including me, and I wrote two opinions in the case. For millions of Americans, their passion for originalism is not some abstract academic question of interpretive methodology. For millions of Americans, their passion for originalism comes from the fact that they like the Constitution. They like what it says. They like what it protects and shields against the ravages of the mob. And they like what it entrusts to the people and to the democratic process to decide. How tragically ironic it would be then to practice a form of originalism that governs every legal dispute under the sun, except the most important ones. So what should judges do when people boo? I have three thoughts. First, learn to expect it. Judges should expect people to boo. Criticism of judges is nothing new, and it's certainly not going anywhere. Thomas Jefferson once blasted the entire judiciary as a, quote, subtle core of sappers and miners, constantly working underground to undermine the foundations of our confederated fabric. I confess, I'm not sure what that means. but It it doesn't sound good. Um, Teddy Roosevelt once said about Oliver Wendell Holmes that you could, quote, carve out of a banana a judge with more backbone than him. (laughs) That doesn't sound nice, either. Criticism of judges. Is historical because it's natural. You can't tell people not to be upset with the outcome of a particular case they care about because you cannot tell people not to feel what they feel. I'm a big Stanford football fan, all right? Come on, Nick. Come on, Nick. Beat Cal. You can't. I'm a big Stanford football fan. You threw me there, buddy. I've been to every Rose Bowl game. Stanford has ever attended in my lifetime. It's not many, but I've been to all of them. So when I boo a ref, and yes, it's when, not if I boo a ref, it's not because I have some deep philosophical disagreement with the underlying principles that the ref is applying when he calls pass interference. I'm booing because I want Stanford to win. And I would say that it's the God-given right of every red-blooded American to yell at refs. And I'd say the exact same thing about criticizing judges. Maybe this is just the former litigator in me. But if I'm in a charitable mood, I might just view criticisms of judges as just another form of passionate, aggressive advocacy. And there's even a term for it. It happens to be another sports analogy. It's called working the refs. On the other hand, if I'm feeling less charitable, one might view certain critics as nothing more than playground bullies. People who can't just rely on text or truth to win, and so they instead have to resort to yelling and screaming and name-calling to get their way. But either way, whether you take the charitable or uncharitable view, the lesson for judges is ultimately the same. As judges, it's our duty to do our jobs and to ignore the booing of the crowd. If you're looking for gold stars, you are in the wrong business. You should become a judge for public service, not public applause. Because if you do the job faithfully, you should expect to be either hated or ignored. Moreover, there's another reason why judges should expect to be booed. It's not just because we live in a free country where people have the right to boo. It's also because we live in a diverse country where you can find people who hold any number of views across a wide wide spectrum. Some of the harshest critics of originalist judges, in fact, happen to hold some of the most extreme views in our country. And sometimes they say the quiet part out loud. Some have called the Constitution trash, written by slavers. Some have celebrated the discrimination and disruption we've been seeing on law school campuses. Some have condemned religious conservatives as undeserving of respect. Some have advocated treating people differently, even choosing who to put in prison based on the color of their skin. Needless to say, I strongly disagree with all those views, but I mention them because it may explain a lot about what's being said. If you don't like colorblindness, then of course you're not going to like colorblind judges. If you think our Constitution is trash, then of course you'll trash people who follow it faithfully. If you don't like our Constitution, then you're not going to like originalism. My second thought is this. You should not only expect booing, you should get used to it. Because it's not going away anytime soon. For too long, we've been sending the message that to achieve your desired outcomes, you don't have to persuade. You can just pressure and punish. We've taught the next generation that you can win the argument without actually winning the argument. And it doesn't matter if you prove time and time again that criticisms won't affect you. Because when it comes to cancel culture, the intended audience isn't the target of the attacks. It's everyone else. So get used to it. The good news is that you can get used to it. I'll use an analogy that comes, uh, mercifully, not from sports, but science. Biosphere 2 is a science research facility in Arizona. It's the largest, fully enclosed ecological system ever created. Scientists have used it to study a number of natural phenomena. One thing they learned, by accident actually, is that when you have a completely enclosed environment, trees grow very quickly, but then they start to collapse. They discovered that this idyllic environment is really good for trees at first, but then it spells disaster. That's because inside an enclosed facility, there's no wind. So trees never get the chance to learn how to stand against the wind. They don't develop the natural strength They'll need to prosper later in life. They never develop what's known as stress wood. Now, a life without stress may sound great at first. But trees actually need stress to become strong. They need stress to learn how to survive the harsh weather conditions they know they're going to encounter later in life. Stress wood is ultimately the only cure for gold star syndrome. It inoculates you to harsh criticism. It's a natural immunity that you can only build up over time, both before and after you take the bench. If you're going to do this job, stress is guaranteed. Criticism is unavoidable. You just have to learn not to worry about it. So my advice is you do what refs do. Do your job and then go home. Have a wonderful, fulfilling, personal life. When you look in the mirror, you should see a mom, a dad, a husband, a wife. But if what you see in the mirror is a judge, If your whole life's purpose is to wear black robes, then maybe you shouldn't. My third and final thought. Don't just expect harsh criticism. Don't just get used to it. You should also get comfortable with it. We are all extraordinarily blessed to live in this amazing country. And some of us are even fortunate to play at least some small role in helping to lead this country forward whether we're judges or leading practitioners in the law or influential legal scholars or any number of other positions. But that privilege can come at a cost to use an analogy, being faithful to the constitution is like being a faithful Christian. As the Bible teaches, Christians should expect to be criticized. I'll read just a few verses from chapter four of Peter's first epistle. Dear friends, But if we have to use a sports metaphor, I've got another idea. I mentioned earlier that I like football. I'm also a big fan of tennis and lately pickleball. The U.S. Open is one of my—I fa- don't know why that's a laugh line.
2: <laughs> it wasn't written
3: as a laugh line. Um, the U.S. Open is one of my favorite tennis tournaments. In fact, my post-college graduation vacation, I included a trip to New York uh, to watch my first U.S. Open uh, in person. The final rounds of the US Open are held at Arthur Ashe Stadium. Those who have had the honor of competing there call it the most intense, stressful, pressure-packed stadium you'll ever play in. And it's not just because the stakes are enormous. The stadium itself is also physically daunting. It's been described as unapologetically large and loud, like its host city. Every player who competes on that court first walks by a plaque that prominently displays four important words. Pressure is a privilege. Those same four words are also what judges should keep in mind every time we step onto the court. Four days before she won this year's women's final, just last month, a reporter asked Coco Gauff how she handles the pressures of being a professional tennis player as a 19-year-old. Her response should, should resonate with every member of our profession, lawyers as well as judges. Here's what she said. I think it's just putting my life into perspective. There are people struggling to feed their families, people who don't know where their next meal is going to come from. That's real pressure. That's real hardship. That's real life. I'm in a very privileged position. I'm getting paid to do what I love and getting support to do what I love. There are millions of people who probably want to be in this position. So I should enjoy this. I'm having so much fun doing it, and I shouldn't think about the results. I'm living a lucky life, and I'm so blessed. To that, Coco Goff, I say amen. Stress is inevitable in our profession, but pressure is a privilege. As judges, we should always remember two things, that there are countless law students, lawyers, and fellow Americans who would do anything to trade places with us, and Second, that nobody forced you to become a judge. You agreed to become a judge. Some people even lobby and campaign for it. And you can quit anytime you want. It's life tenure, not a life sentence. So you should only do it if you are ready and willing to accept everything that it entails. It is my profound privilege to serve on the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. And it is my profound privilege to deliver this year's Story Lecture. Thank you for listening.
1: All right, Zach, we are back to my favorite part of the show, trivia. I can't wait. (laughs) All right. So this week's trivia is really unusual. Um, AI, as you know, is all the rage. I am too old to figure it out, but our interns are not. And our current intern, Matt Turner, uh, gave an AI program the following prompt write for me an excerpt from a hypothetical Supreme Court decision in the style of justice uh, insert name here. So he ran, a search, he ran this prompt for a whole bunch of different justices to see if the AI could mimic their style. So we'll test both how well the AI did and your ability to recognize uh, the justices writing styles with uh, the responses from that prompt. This seems very abstract, uh, GC. I'm not sure how I feel about uh, today's trivia. Well, you know, it's actually really interesting. So, I- and a word, a word uh, to our listeners. If your favorite justice didn't make the cut here, it's not because I was arbitrary in my selection. But as you'll, as you'll come to see, sometimes the AI did a very good job. Sometimes the AI didn't produce anything that was distinctly recognizable. Uh, so I've just picked the ones where I thought that you could um, – where, where a fair mind could sort of have a chance to identify what the AI was trying to do.
2: Well, fair enough, and I've got to give credit to Matt Turner, our intern, who came up with this. It's a very uh, unique trivia idea, uh, and so
1: kudos to Matt for uh, taking the time to, to help us put this together today. Yes, indeed. So, here's your first quote. Which AI justice delivered this? In approaching this case, we must consider the pragmatic implications of our decision, recognizing that the law is a dynamic force that must adapt to the complexities of modern society. Ugh. The Constitution <laughs> is not a static document frozen in time, but rather a living framework designed to endure the test of time.
2: So it's which, uh, which justice did AI attribute this quote to? That's what I'm correct, to guess. Correct, correct. Well, I'm going to guess it's not an originalist uh, judge you know, safe. <laughs> who, who said this uh, statement. Uh, you know, it sounds like something that Stephen Breyer uh, wrote or would have written in one of his books, uh, Active Liberty or The Court in the World or something along those lines. So I'll guess uh, Justice
1: Breyer. Well done, Zach. And well done, I guess, to the A.I. That, that was indeed A.I. Justice Breyer.
2: And we can talk about why that's such a problematic approach to law on a different
1: episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Number two, which AI justice said this? The law, my esteemed colleagues, is but a reflection of the social currents that course through our nation's great veins. I'm sorry, our great nation's veins. In this case, we must recognize that the old precedents no longer serve the justice of today, and we must adapt to the ever-changing landscape of human experience. I don't know GC. I don't really have anything other than kind of a gut into it. All right, let me let me give you a slight hint. Uh, all right, I think I think the key here is uh, the ever changing landscape of human experience. Yeah, so I was going to say it sounds kind of like a Brandis or a Holmes or something along those lines
2: would be my my gut intuition. <laughs>
1: yes, that's Oliver Wendell Holmes. I think that um, the AI probably picked up on his famous quote: "You know, the life of the law has not been logic; it has been experience."
2: Mm. Interesting.
1: All right. Number three, here's your quote. The Constitution is not a living, breathing document capable of morphing to suit the whims of contemporary sensibilities. Its enduring strength lies in its original text and the clear intent of its framers.
2: Well, I will go with the flip side to Justice Stephen Breyer and say uh, this sounds like something a solid originalist justice uh, would have said. Um, So I have some choices off of the current court I could pick from. Uh, but I'm gonna go with Justice Antonin Scalia, uh, given his extensive writings.
1: On that the is uh, exactly right. That was the AI imitating fairly successfully Justice Scalia. Yeah. I think you know it didn't quite have his wit and pluck, but I think the use of that uh, interesting verb "morphing" to suit the whims—that's that's some—that's some, that's pretty identifiably something Scalia would say.
2: Interesting. Well, it sounded uh, close enough to my ear.
1: <laughs> All right, a little harder now. I think the AI was uh, a little out of its comfort zone, Uh, but here's uh, number four. In contemplating the majestic framework of our constitution, it becomes abundantly clear that the sovereignty of this union is rooted in the collective will of the people, a fundamental principle upon which our republic stands. Thus, in this solemn adjudication, we declare that the compact between the states and the federal government is indissoluble.
2: Well, again, I don't really know, GC. Uh, I do know that uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy liked to use uh, flowery, high-flying <laughs> language in many of his opinions. Uh, so my shot in the dark here will be uh, Justice Kennedy.
1: <laughs> well, it, it, it that is a fair that is a fair guess. You're not right uh, because for a couple Story of things. <laughs> Story of my life. Story of my life. The. Um, Collective will of the people is a more concrete principle than Kennedy would expound (laughs) upon, I think. So, no, it was not Kennedy. It was tricky either way. The AI says that this is John Marshall. Mm. But, you know, I was actually thrown that second sentence about the indissolubility of the federal government. You know, made me think of Salmon Chase's decision from 1869 in uh, Texas versus White, where the court held that Texas never actually left the Union because the Constitution provides states no power to or right to to secede. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, you know. Interesting. Number five, last one. The Constitution's genius lies in its capacity to evolve, to reflect the evolving standards of decency, and our jurisprudence should be rooted in the recognition that the Constitution is a charter of inclusivity.
2: I'm going to guess Earl Warren on this one. Uh, You know, of course, he wrote the infamous uh, Trump versus Dulles decision where he coined the evolving standards of decency uh, test for the Eighth Amendment. Uh, so Earl Warren is my guess on this one.
1: You know what? I, the AI says you're wrong, but you are. You should be right. The AI actually <laughs> gives this to uh, Justice. <laughs> yes, gives this to Justice William Brennan. But the uh, evolving standards of decency language is Warren. So uh, the AI is wrong on this one. So I give you the point. Uh, I will.
2: I will happily take it. And either way, I think uh, Chief Justice Warren or Justice Brennan were both the. Uh, wrong, generally, in <laughs> their approach to uh, <laughs> constitutional interpretation. So, Well, so well is, done, Zach. That's all I've got for you today. Well, thank you, GC. And again, uh, thanks to Matt uh, Turner for helping us put this together today. Uh, it's a very interesting trivia topic, and we'll have to see what we can come up with uh, for next week that will be uh, just as outside of the box. Well, that's all we have for today. Thank you, everyone, for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we appreciate if you left us a five-star rating.
1: You can follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows.
0: Case is submitted.
1: You've been listening
3: to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed
0: by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.